Welcome. If, uh, if you're newer with us, my name's Tim. Uh, I get the privilege of serving here and get to, on a regular basis, teach scripture, unpack that with y'all. Uh, appreciate Carla, but thank you for your, your prayer this morning to honor veterans. And, and really, Carla, thanks. I appreciate just uh, what he said at the beginning of our time of worship this morning. I mean, it had this political election, it, it has affected all of us and uh, some of us in really uh, very emotionally deep ways. And, and, you know, he talked about us being a community of listening, of understanding, of prayer. And that is, that's my heart, um, because I know there, there are people who are feeling um, hurt and feeling scared and feeling judgment and all sorts of stuff, and that we, as kingdom people, would be people of prayer, people of seeking understanding. Um, I believe that's the way of Jesus. Uh, this morning, we are, we're going to continue our series of teaching. Uh, we've been on a, a, a series, Who Are You?, we're talking about issues of identity, and how do, we, how do we think about ourselves? How do we see ourselves? How does God invite us to see ourselves? And we're going to continue talking about that uh, today. So when I was in third grade, I went to an elementary school, Aladdin Elementary, out in, out in the fields, uh, rural Michigan. And, uh, and one of the things at Aladdin Elementary, I don't know how it was at, at uh, your school, but when it rained, they were really, they did not want to get any mud inside. So there are a couple rules. One, you could only play on the blacktop if it was wet or rainy out. And then two, you had to wear boots to play on the blacktop. So, uh, so Matt, you know, just all the, these hundreds of elementary schools crammed on this little postage stamp of blacktop. We've all got our 80s moon boots on. And there's jump rope, and there's, you know, hopscotch, and foursquare, and basketball, and tag. I mean, it is just demolition derby out there. I don't know who thought this. I mean, this seems like a great idea. Nothing could go wrong. And I think about the, like, the... Uh, the, uh, the recess supervisors, what that was like, kind of trying to be in charge of this, this controlled chaos. So this, this particular recess, I'm playing full court basketball with my buddies. And uh, at mid-court, like in the center of the basketball court, there's a game of Foursquare going on. You all remember Foursquare? Foursquare is fantastic. You know, I feel like it's the granddaddy of spike ball. You know, it's just, it's a great game. And uh, so they're four square, and we're playing basketball. We've got the moon boots on, thunk, thunk, thunk. And, uh, and I remember this loose ball gets squirted out, and um, my buddy Brian Box and I were chasing down this loose basketball. And all of a sudden, as I'm running, this four square player's leg moon boot just shoots out in front of me. And I, you know, I trip, I'm going for the basketball, and then I'm going down on the block, and I break my fall on the blacktop with my face, and just, and I, you know, skid to a stop, and I kind of prop myself up, and my two front teeth fall out onto the ground. And the first thing, I can remember it, the first thing I thought was, I'm never going to have real front teeth again. I mean, it was like this loss. I was like, I will never have real front teeth again. And, you know, whatever. It's not a, you know, whatever. They're front teeth, not a big deal. You know, I don't try try not to bite apples like this. And generally, I don't think about it. You know, I know now you're probably like, yeah, I can can see. I can tell this. You know, I'm not normally self-conscious about it, but... Maybe I'll smile less this morning. Um, 
But as a, you know, as a third grader, an eight-year-old, this happens. And my intuitively, I, I knew there are certain things that happen and it will never be the same. And, and it's, for me, the t, it's a picture of, it's a picture of bigger, more important things that happen in our lives. This morning I want to talk about our identity, and I want to talk about how hurt shapes our identity. How pain shapes our identity. Because the reality is there, there are things that uh, can happen to us, maybe even long ago, conversations we had. Things that can happen to those around us. Even, even things, things just that we hoped for. Aches that never, desires that never materialized. We can have these hurts in our life. And maybe they're not even, they wouldn't seem like big deals to those on the outside. But we can have these hurts in our life. And the reality is they shape our identity. The question isn't, the question isn't, if the question isn't if they'll shape our identity, the question is how will they shape our identity? I think about I think about my own uh, my own story, and uh, I, when I think about the great hurts of my life, I think about uh, in high school, my junior year, a good friend dying unexpectedly. I think about the early years of our marriage and the uh, the real painful struggle it was to learn to be married. I think about a season in my late 20s of depression-like symptoms in my life. And, and, I, and, I, and I recognize how every one of those things has shaped my identity in profound ways. Not necessarily always for good, but they shape me. Our great hurts shape us. I want to just invite you to reflect for a moment to think about your own life. What are the great hurts of your life? How have they shaped your identity? The reality, the, 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 the reality is, it's not if they're going to shape our identity. The question is, how will your great hurts shape your identity? How have they shaped your identity? It could be things that happened recently. It might be things that happened a long time ago. What are the great hurts of your life? And how have they shaped you? They, these things, they, 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 they impact what we most care about. I mean, many of our deepest passions flow out of our deepest hurts. The things we most care about, the people we most naturally have compassion on. Oftentimes, our deepest fears, the things that we most get angry about, the things we want to control, they flow out of our great hurts. Our great hurts shape what we most care about for good and for bad. And the question isn't, the question isn't if the great hurts of our life will shape our identity. The question is, how will they shape our identity. I want to invite you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Chapter 1. Ruth is way to the left. It's after Judges. It's before 1 Samuel. 
And this morning, uh, as, we, as we think about the great hurts of our life, how they shape our identity, I'd like to just um, look into the, the, the book of Ruth uh, focuses on these two women um, who have experienced great hurt in their life and, and how it shapes them. And i just like to look at some of this story and see if it doesn't speak to how, um, how our identities might be shaped by hurt. So I'm going to begin reading in Ruth chapter 1. You're welcome to just listen or the words will be on the screen or you can follow along in your own Bible as well. So Ruth 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now the story continues, and what happens next? Naomi makes the decision to move back to her hometown, Bethlehem. Uh, and she tells her two widowed daughters-in-law, she says to them, don't come with me. You stay here in your home country, and I'm going to go back to my homeland. Orpah, one of the widowed daughter-in-law, one of them says, okay, I'm going to stay here. But the other one, Ruth, has a different reaction. Uh, and skipping down to verse 16, Ruth replied to Naomi. She said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You know, we look at, we look at the story of Ruth and Naomi. We look at our own lives. And, I, and, and the question isn't, if the great hurts of our life, if the losses, if the pain, the question isn't if they will shape our identities. The question is, how will they shape our identities? They will shape our identities. Ruth, she, uh, she, she loses her husband. And, and out of this loss, 
we see her identity change in a profound way. I mean, she changes what country she's living in, what God she's attached to. She, she, her identity radically changes. And she says to her widowed mother-in-law, I will be with you no matter what. I mean, the, the, out of this loss, this identity of a faithful and compassionate one is formed in her heart. And then Naomi... She, she loses her, her son, she loses her husband, and, and her identity is shaped out of that. And I mean, to the point where she goes back to her hometown and she, she literally changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore, my name is now Bitter One. And I don't want to, and I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to value judge her for that. This is this is one point on her journey. She is at this point. She is shattered. She is crushed. She's lost her husband, lost her sons. And even as we as we look at the the whole book of Ruth, we see that Naomi's on the journey. That by the, by the end of the, the the book, her identity has shifted even more. But at this point in her story, she says, "Call me bitter one." What are the great hurts? What are the great hurts of your life? And how have they shaped your identity? The great hurts of our life, they affect what we most care about. They affect about what we're passionate about, who we care for, what, who we move towards, who we have compassion on. But they, all, they also affect, they can affect what we get angry about, what we, what we feel numb towards. And, and, and what, we see, uh, what we see with Naomi, what we see uh, with, with Naomi is that, that they have shaped her identity into, uh, into, into the bitter one. And, and, and I, The great hurts of our life, they have the ability to do this. They can give us an identity like bitter one or angry one or fearful one. And I'm not talking about, I want to be clear, what I'm not talking about there, I'm not talking about is is the grief process. Because I recognize the grief process is a messy process. That we go through these stages. We might have anger, we might have numbness, we might have apathy, we might have confusion, we might be scared, but I'm not talking about a movement through the grief process. What I'm talking about is the danger that we allow our great hurts that we get stuck at one of these places, that our identity permanently becomes fearful one or permanently becomes angry one or permanently becomes bitter one. Our great hurts, the question isn't if they'll shape our identity, the question is how will they shape our identity? And there's this one danger that our, our name becomes permanently bitter or angry or fearful. But I also believe that God, that he desires to meet us in our great hurts. And he desires to, through that to shape a different identity in us. And we see, out of, we see out of Ruth's great hurt, this great care, this compassion for her mother-in-law expressed. And I believe that if we allow God to meet us and his people to meet us in our great hurt, he desires to shape a different identity in us. An identity of compassionate one. Of honest one. 
courageous one. An identity as one who clings to God. An identity of wounded healer. I believe, I believe that that as as we face our great hurts, that as we we face those uh, with God, knowing He's with us, with His people, that what He is able to do, that what we will find is that often your greatest ministry to others will not flow out of your great talents but will flow out of your great hurt. That as we we face our great hurts and allow God to meet us there and do that with His people around us, that, that your most profound ministry to those around you won't flow out of your great skills and abilities. It will flow out of those places you've been hurt. The question isn't, if these things will shape our identity. The question is how. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, but what does it look like? What does it look like to allow God to, what does it look like not to get stuck? What does it look like to allow God to shape that kind of identity in me? Maybe you're here and as you reflect on your great hurts, maybe maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, there's some places that I've had things happen that have hurt me, and I, there are some ways that I'm stuck that I don't like. Or maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and you're in a space of grief, and you're thinking, I, I, yeah, I'm there. I don't want it to end up naming me that way. I want a redemptive identity out of this. Or, or maybe you're walking with someone who's in grief right now. What does it look like to allow God to shape this kind of redemptive identity in us? I think at its core... I think at the core, it's the, the honesty and courage to face it. And to face it in the context, in the presence of a God who's with us and with his people. To not become isolated. It's to walk into it. I think even a book like this, the fact that God has had this, this, the story of these women recorded and preserved for us as part of his scripture... I mean, this story of these, these, these two women who suffer uh, loss of husbands and sons. I think as we read this, it's God, God invites us to read our great hurts. To see them as part of His. That, that, we, we, that just because we've had these great hurts, we don't fall outside of His work or His care for us. I think a book like this invites us to walk into our hurt with Him and with His people. There's, a, there's an author, uh, Brene Brown. Some of you may have read, or seen, read some of her work or seen um, her talks on authenticity. And once I was listening to a talk she gave, she was talking about her journey to Jesus and his people, the church. And, um, and she said this. She said, So I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural. Like it would take the pain away. And then I discovered that faith and church was not like an epidural at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me and said, push. It's supposed to hurt. 
that, that God invites us to, to, to face our great hurts. Not to bury them or numb them or ignore them, to face them with him and with his people. And it's in that that God is able to raise out and form a different kind of redemptive identity out of these great hurts in our lives. John Paul II talked about scripture and he described scripture. He said it's a great book about suffering. And that, that uh, the book of Ruth, I mean, the story of these women and the, the, these women who, who, are, who, are, who suffer, these losses, that we're able to read our own great hurts and have God meet us in that. I mean, in, in, the, in, in Scripture, we have the Psalms. Over a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They're, they're prayers and songs about anger, about confusion, about, about, uh, about uh, frustration, about crying out to God, where are you? They invite us to pray our great hurts and allow us Him to meet us there. When, when we come to the story of Jesus, we, we meet Jesus and we're told that He was a man familiar with sufferings. And I think we're invited to look at the great hurts of our life and to, that, that even in that, to know Jesus has walked this road ahead of us. We can walk this road with Him. That, that, that this part of our life, this, um, the, these great hurts, they're not a place where God is absent from, but He's actually able to meet us in those. And as we bring our great hurts, as we face them and bring them to God with His people, that He's able to do a different kind of work, that our, that our identities don't become these other things, permanently bitter one, permanently angry one, permanently fearful one, but he's able to shape a different kind of identity in our hearts as we face these. The question isn't if they'll shape us. The question is how. I want to invite up a friend, Camille Selleck. Uh, Camille is a woman who has walked the walk. And she is willing and uh, courageous to share some of her story this morning with us. And so, Camille, thank you again for doing this. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Hi, like Tim said, my name is Camille Selleck. Uh, I'm married to a lovely man named Ben. We have three daughters. We've been at Hillcrest for since the 90s or something. Um, We'll just put it there. (laughs) So this little bit about my story. When I was a little girl, I don't really remember a time that Jesus wasn't present in my life. I remember simply loving my Jesus because he was always so good to me. I was, I loved him so much, much to my mother's chagrin, that I would stand up on mall benches and belt out, Jesus loves me at the top of my lungs. I would go and evangelize in the neighborhood and bring my recorder of Salty the Singing Songbook to teach kids how to worship Jesus. I was that person at a ripe age of four and five. And the one thing, so this idea that Jesus is good, that's what drew me to him, that he was good. And Jesus gave me this gift uh, as a person to always look for the redemptive part of, of anyone's story, of my story. It's why I love stories like J.R.R. Tolkien's and um, C.S. Lewis and all of those stories where good conquers over evil. I'm looking for the hope. Now, I was, in, I was 
uh, like I said, I love to sing. And so I thought that I would sing Arky Arky in, in a school talent show. And I was seven years old. And I was excited to sing this song. And then I found out that there was some tension that maybe I shouldn't sing this song because it's a Christian song and it's a public school. Well, my mom's a fighter like I am, and she said, no, she's going to sing it. But then when it came time for me to sing at the school assembly um, for the practice, I forgot all the words. I couldn't do it because it was this first time where I met this resistance that possibly there are people that don't think my Jesus is good. And I was nervous about that. And I'm glad my mom pushed me. And that evening, I would sing at the at the talent show in the evening. But when I when the when the think imagine a little seven year old girl on the school stage and the curtains open to a sea of people and you don't recognize any one of them and you're already nervous and you can't find your mom anywhere. And I couldn't find her. But then right in the corner, left hand corner, there's this woman with this big beaming smile. And I just counted it as Jesus saying, I am good. I'm taking care of you. Never saw the lady again. And I would take that with me, take this idea, not just this idea, but that Jesus was good. And it would carry with me through a lot of dysfunction growing up and uh, being raised in a church where there was a little bit um, tension as well if your parents got divorced and you weren't treated kindly. And I still remember in my persistence and my stubbornness that I knew that my Jesus, though, was good in spite of it all. Now, I have brothers on both, side of, both sides of me, and we, both, we all kind of handle that in our own way of our dysfunction. So in the fall of 2003, um, I lived right up the road. It was before we had kids. So I was married, and the air, it was one of those perfect fall days where there's sunshine, so you know there's a little bit of hope. <laughs> And it was crisp, and it wasn't too cold, but it was, it was perfect. It was quintessential fall in Bellingham. And the sun, I remember it shining down on me like it was like peace flooding my soul. And Jesus said to me, Camille, my older brother's name is Willie. She said, he said, Camille, Willie's going to be okay. And I remember, I know, I remember hearing his, his voice and, and knowing his peace in that, that you don't have to worry about him. So three months prior to that, on that same front porch, my younger brother was, gonna get, uh, was going to graduate from high school. And so my brother and my older brother, my dad, came to, to we were going to drive down together. And they're there on the front porch, and I could see into Willie's soul. It was so empty and desperately sad. And seeing as I've never used drugs, I had no idea what he was on, simply that he was on something, and it was literally ripping the life from him. My heart, it broke into a million pieces, just like it would on that horrible Thursday. Because when I peered into my brother's eyes that spring of 2003, I didn't, I didn't see a junkie. I saw my brother the one who would play soccer with me in the front yard and slide tackle me, and the one who would protect me from people who would hurt me. And still, Jesus would use, would constantly tell me and show me that he's still good, and he would even use song, because later that day, after my brother graduated and he was off celebrating, there, as when I watched my brother get up every five minutes twitching and not himself and 
He would lie on my mom's bed, writhing in pain because he was coming off of the heroin. And I prayed and I sang music to him to help ease his pain. So in the evening of that fall day when I stepped off my porch and I heard Jesus say that, that Willie would be okay, that night I got a call from my dad. And prior, my older brother, he had gone into a, a, it's a drug recovery place called Teen, ja- Teen Challenge. So my dad called me up and he said, Camille, I went to, I went to Teen Challenge today and Willie didn't know I was there. I was in the back. And I was watching him, and he was up front, and he was worshiping, and his hands were raised, and he was praising Jesus. And he came up to me, because even prior to that, that conversation, Willie had told my dad, Dad, I'm not going to stay here. This is not the place for me. I'm going to leave. And um, my dad said, well, you can either be there or, or you, you don't come knocking on my door. And so he was resistant to stay, but then my dad said, but Camille, he said that I want to stay here. I want to be here. So he gave me peace. Jesus gave me peace because just days before that, that's when Willie had said he was going to leave. And I loved how God met my brother in the form of an 82-year-old man to sit with him and talk to him. And Willie, he was sitting on the, on the, like on this, um, on the curb with his bags packed, and Jesus stood in the gap. He met Willie for the first, for the first time in years because Willie had turned from himself away from himself, and turned full-facing his maker to accept the kingdom life he had to offer. Fast forward, as my brother went ebbs and flows of being um, clean and being not clean and turning his eyes towards Jesus and embracing community and walking away from community and embracing the life that Jesus didn't have for him. It was Thursday morning. It was like any other morning, August 28th. 2014, Ben returned home late the night before from a business trip, and it was heading out the door in usual fashion. And I noticed that there was a call on my phone. There is, um, it was from my, my, my brother's fiance with a voicemail. And I almost didn't answer it because it's the morning time, and who wants to answer a call? You know, like you're like, oh, I'll, I'll get to that later. But I saw that it was super short. It was 17 seconds. It's amazing how in 17 seconds, you can tell something is forever going to change your world. My dad, again calling me, except this time, it wasn't to reassure me that everything would be okay. It was an urgency to call back. There was panic and fear in his voice. And I honestly, I thought it was just that Willie was arrested because honestly, if you have a drug addict for a, a family member, the, the, what you want them to be is in jail because they're actually safer. But it wasn't. Um, my dad answered and his voice broken, shaking, Camille, Willie's gone. And all I can remember is shouting out, falling on the floor, just shouting, no, 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 Dad, he's not. You can bring him back. He's not dead. Willie's not dead. And again, just shouting, no, no, no. I think about Martha. As her brother died, 
and she went to meet Jesus, and she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Except I didn't get my Lazarus ending, and the tomb wasn't empty. Because two nights before my brother died, he told my dad, you don't have to worry, I will, I will never use heroin again. And it would be Thursday morning when my dad would bust down the door to find his firstborn son crumpled up dead to perform CPR and not respond because he would turn away from Jesus and believe the lie. Satan whispered, you can handle just one more shot of heroin. You know it's the best high you've ever had. You need something to numb the pain. I think about that. And as Tim talked about, in the stages of grief, there's lots of emotion. Asking, pleading Jesus to bring him back. Even after he was cremated, pleading that he could bring him back. I asked a lot of why questions, too. And I never got those answers. But the one thing out of all of it is that Jesus reminded me, he kept asking me, but Camille... Who do you say that I am? And I'm taken back to Psalm 23 that he leads me both beside the still waters and he walks with me through the valleys of the shadows and that he really is good in spite of it. And I don't have this nice little package to present to you with a bow and say, oh, here's our happy little ending because it doesn't end that way sometimes. But it leaves me with the question, I think with all of us, is do we believe that he's still good? Do I still trust in him?